This week's Acquirers podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Validia. Validia runs quantitative stock selection models using factor-based strategies from 22 published books and academic research papers with long-term track records of success. Validia has combed through books about historically successful investors such as Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, and Peter Lynch, and academic research papers that contain unique investment strategies and uses them to run model portfolios it has tracked since 2003. You may recognize Validia since two of its founders, Jack Forehand and Justin Carboneau, both good friends of mine, have appeared as guests on the podcast. Through the end of February, Validia is offering 33% off an annual subscription to both its standard and professional product to listeners of the Acquirers podcast. To find out more about Validia, or to take a free trial, you can go to validia.com forward slash Toby. Again, that's V-A-L-I-D-E-A dot com forward slash Toby. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers podcast. My special guest today is Jim Royal. He'll be talking about his book, the Zen of Thrift Conversions, How to Turn Hidden Bank Stocks into Big Gains. It's an absolutely fascinating discussion about how you find these things, how you analyze the opportunity, who you should follow, and how to take advantage of what they do through the whole life cycle of the, from the uh, demutualization or the, the conversion to a public company through the IPO to the sale. We're talking to Jim right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, tell me about Jeopardy. Yeah, so I, I had really been trying to get on there for years and years and years. Uh, in fact, um, the uh, in 2007, I qualified for their audition, and they sorry they finally started doing them around 2005. They started doing them online, right? And I was like, this is perfect, right? Because normally you had to, like if you were in LA, it was great because you could just kind of go to their open auditions and things like that and take the test and whatnot. And uh, finally, they started doing them online, and uh, so it was like great for like me who lived in Florida. Uh, I could just, and they did it once a year. I qualified like early on 2007, couldn't go uh, because I was actually on my honeymoon and uh, I had to like skip the audition. And uh, then I got back another call back in 2011, got another call back in 2014 or 2015, then got a call back in 2018. And that finally led to getting on the show. Um, but really it was like something I wanted to do since like the eighties. So <laughs> how was the experience yeah yeah it was absolutely a blast uh meeting Trebek was of course uh, uh you know the highlight the but uh, yeah and uh so i i i was the last so they do five tapings a day and so i got to see all the shows that would air that week and then i was the friday show and yeah it was it was a blast but the i mean you get up there and 20 minutes later it's done right and it goes by so quick uh that you don't even realize you know oh we're already halfway through and they're taking the commercial break and um you know it's uh it was it was it was so much fun though and i was glad that i got to stay the whole day and see everything just sort of absorb it all 
Um, yeah, and it's unfortunate, I would say, how it worked out for me. Um, but uh, what, the, what question sunk you? Oh, the thing it was at, it was really like one of my worst quality, worst sorry, worst categories. Uh, it was female singers monotonous, so like one name female singers, and so like that's my that's how like on my Twitter handle, right? I've got that pinned yeah, at the so top, yeah. right? And um, you know, and basically at that point, I I had about forty five percent or so closing in on 50% of the money of the leader. I'm like, I know there's one more double jeopardy out there. I've got to try to get it, right? And so I'm sort of hunting around to try to get it. I do get it. And I'm like, all right, this is the time I got to bet it all now to have any shot of winning. And so I do, right? And so like, to me, that's the way you play the game, right? You, 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 you use those other non-trivia elements to try to, um, to try to compensate or try to accelerate the performance, and it just didn't work out. And uh, you know, you know, there was another question about steel, right? So if it had been about a steel company, I would have nailed it. <laughs> but no, it had to be about like really my my worst category. So um, that's you know that's what it was. But an absolute blast and super fun, and uh, uh, just really glad I, I finally got the opportunity to do it. And the See, thing the is, answer, the answer was Adele, right? What was the question? Exactly. It was basically something like this. This singer said, you know, I don't want to look like I, I'm happy with how I look. I don't want to look like uh, because I represent everyday women. Yeah. yeah that's One totally of the strange about. things that I'll mention is that uh, watching it, you know, three months later when it actually aired, I was like, I don't know the answer to that question. And there I am on screen answering the question right. Right. <laughs> and so I'm forgetting like in you're just so zoned in, right? You're just like super focused. And uh, so it was like stuff, stuff sometimes come to you that you don't even remember, that, that you even know you know, right? So you've, uh, you've written a book, which is, this is why we're chatting also because we've known each other for a little while uh, via right. Twitter. And uh, I've always been a big fan of your, uh, your special situations approach, but your book is, uh, I'm just holding up to the camera now, it's the Zen of thrift conversions. I've been searching for the the Zen and the art of thrift conversions over and over again, but I found it. It's uh, the the Zen of thrift conversions. Um, what prompted you to write an entire book about thrift conversions? Yeah. So it's uh, the thing was is ultimately, I mean, it's sort of multiple uh, impulses here. Uh, basically, one is uh, there's no book out there about it, right? And so I'm shocked. Yeah, right. There's, I mean, it's been a sort of special situation for 30 years, and it's never, there's nothing really out there sort of comprehensively discussing it. Um, and uh, so it was, I think, a, an opportunity to sort of collect all the knowledge of about it, about how to do it in one place. And, and really, the book is so much a practical guide about how to do it, right? Like, here's what it is, here's the structure, here's why it creates value. Here's why you have an opportunity. And also let's hear from what uh, the investing greats has said about it, Klarman um, and Peter Lynch uh, previously in, in some of their writings. And then let's look at the guys who dominate the activist investors who dominate the space, right? So you, you sort of get this comp comprehensive uh, picture about thrift conversions, how to do them, um, how to make money, 
what to watch out for, um, et cetera, right? And so uh, for me, like it took me probably 10 years before I stumbled on onto thrift conversions, right? It's just really kind of backwater of the market. And so like, I finally got there. I'm like, hey, these are really interesting, right? Th these are really low risk plays with some, you know, uh, medium, at least medium uh, upside here uh, and sometimes high uh, depending on pricing. And I thought, hey, this is a, great opportunity. Why did it take me 10 years <laughs> to, to uh, catch on to this? And so it's really written for somebody who's not familiar with these to try to get them up to speed. It's really a crash course uh, on, on how they work. Well, why don't we start at the start? What is a thrift conversion? <laughs> yeah. So a thrift conversion, basically you have this whole class of banks that are mutually owned. They're owned by their depositors, right? And they're, they're really kind of private banks uh, that there's about a little more than 450 of them left in the U.S. Uh, today. Uh, previously, there were more than a thousand, um, and it's owned mutually by the depositors. And at least in theory, legally, they sort of own the capital in that business. Uh, but that really doesn't mean very much. They don't get to access it. Uh, they 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 really don't have a a, a lot of say in, in how it's used or or anything, right? So. They don't, it, for all intents and purposes, uh, really kind of nobody owns the bank. Um, and so what happens is basically these banks then go public, right? So what, it, it's a kind of recapitalization transaction and the subscriber, sorry, the depositor owners get to subscribe uh, in the IPO offering. Um, and usually it's it's mostly, mostly, um, uh, uh, sorry, restricted to uh, the depositors who can participate in the IPO. And actually, it's a really great setup, as you can imagine. Uh, the, 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 the depositors are really kind of selling it back to themselves, and management is on board. Um, and so that in the, the economics are tremendously favorable here, right? Because in many cases, you've got an already profitable bank. It's got Usually it's got plenty of capital already, and then they add more capital into it. So basically shareholders who participate in these get a bunch of capital in their bank for free, which is to say they get to buy an overcapitalized bank usually uh, at a below tangible book price. Um, and, you know, that's, it's hard to go wrong ultimately. So is it, is it, a, is it a matter of they've sort of, they're using it as customers of the bank. They need some sort of, they're using it because they want to take advantage of the services and then they get given the shares and they're not necessarily, um, they just view that as sort of found value and they tend to just sell them and, and, and grab it at the time. It's a little bit like a spin-off where folks aren't necessarily interested in holding it. Is that what creates the opportunity? I think, I think there's, there's, there's definitely some of that because a lot, a lot of the depositors in, in these banks, um, uh, really don't know a lot about this, um, and plenty do. So I don't, I don't want to sort of paint too broad a brush here, but um, because there's a lot of investors who do participate in, uh, put their deposit their money in the mutual and, uh, and then try to participate in the IPO. But there's plenty who don't. Plenty are just in there for the first day pop, you know, if you get them 15, 15 to 20% upside, and then they're just kind of gone. Right, and they're not interested. But I think that there's really two aspects to this. Uh, the first is um, 
there's an alignment between insiders and outsiders here, right? So um, uh, on, the, on the one, basically you're buying on the same terms as the insiders because you know in a traditional IPO, what you've got is a bunch of insiders selling to outsiders or um, either their own shares or you know, raising new capital. Um, and that's not the situation in a thrift IPO, right? Because in, in some sense, uh, effectively nobody kind of owns it. Um, you've got you've got different motivations, and so the insiders, the, so the bank insiders who are participating, are participating on the same terms as the outside shareholders, right? So there's not you don't have that same sort of inside outside dynamic that you have in a traditional IPO, and so they're also interested, uh, as you might imagine, if they're, as we see in other you know spinoff realms, where they're interested in giving themselves. Uh, cheaper options and things like that, which you've got here, they've got their thumb on the scale and a little bit in terms of valuation, right? So there's a, there's a nice setup there where they can uh, kind of uh, keep, keep the valuation a little bit lower. But that's the first part. The second part here though, is really it's because a lot of the value comes from, you've got this inaccessible capital, right? So that when I put up new capital, I then suddenly get access to this previously untouchable capital, right? So it's, I'm just really kind of being given free money uh, in as the bank. I mean, Peter Lynch calls this the, the uh, hidden cash in the drawer trick. Basically, you buy a house and then you go in and you've got your purchase price back in cash in, in a drawer, in a kitchen drawer in the house, right? And so that's the sort of sense in which there's, there's, there's kind of free money here. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, to sort of conceptualize it a little bit differently, you know, if I, if I, the bank basically promises to, to uh, give you that access to that capital if you put up a little bit more. So you're always getting something in excess of what you put in. So to summarize the insiders, unlike a normal IPO where the insiders are trying to get the highest price they possibly can, these insiders, because they want to participate because they're basically employees becoming owners, they want to participate. So they're, they're also interested in keeping the price low. So they're sandbagging a little bit. Do you wind up, uh, who, who, who ends up controlling? Is there a, does, does there ever end up being a big concentrated controlling shareholder or is it a very uh, dispersed shareholder base? Yeah, I mean, it tends to be fairly, uh, fairly dispersed. Uh, there are certain rules on how much management can own. I think it's around 25%. That usually doesn't come into play a lot. I mean, one of the things you can see certainly in the, in the prospectus uh, for the offering, you can see how much management is taken down in the offering. And, uh, you know, you'd love to see, of course, them hitting their maximum. There's, there's certain maximum thresholds that any shareholder uh, can, uh, can buy in the offering. And you'd love to see that, you know, those eight, eight or 10 named executive officers just taken down the full allotment. Right. Uh, uh, but yeah, it tends to be pretty dispersed. Uh, you'll get some activists come in, uh, uh, Joe Stilwell, Larry Seidman, Rich Lashley, who, uh, or others potentially, but those are really uh, the three uh, biggest names, I would say. And sometimes those guys will buy an eight or nine or 9.9% position if they really want to uh, affect change, but they tend to be pretty large shareholders. And then another uh, large shareholder, although it's a little bit of a different uh, beast, is um, a pension plan or something like that, or um, 
uh, an options plan for employees that might take down six or 8% of the stock right out of the offering. Um, and, uh, but that tends to be, you know, a really kind of passive, um, passive shareholder. So how do you go about hunting for these things? Where, where do you, uh, how, how do you, how do you search for them? Yeah. So like mul multiple ways, I would say, right. Um, that I, I think a, a lot of times, uh, people focus on the, the specific conversion aspect, but a, a real part of the value here is later on too. Right. So like, is, is the, you know, years one, one through five, typically when most of these things eventually got bought out. So uh, there's, there's really two, two key distinct, uh, uh, life cycles here. And really, uh, you can search, uh, search for these if you're doing, uh, you know, looking for S1s or things like that off the Edgar database. Um, if you're looking for the IPOs uh, to keep those on your radar, and it's got pricing in there and everything. So you can figure out uh, uh, a range of where it's going to be priced. And often these, you know, often the these uh, IPOs come off uh, between 60 and 80% of tangible book value. Um, so you look for the IPO prospectus, um, or then you look in the secondary market. I've got basically, I follow all of the recent ones, um, uh, whether it's IPO or upcoming IPO or um, stuff that, you know, trades in the public markets on the zenofthriskconversions.com. So that's like a super easy place to go and just, uh, you know, see what's, uh, see what's going on. Normally you have four, five, six, maybe up to 10 IPOs a year. So it's not a particularly hectic schedule. <laughs> when you say, uh, so they're listing these things at 60 to 80% of tangible book value. Is, I know you've got a reference on the site to finding these things that are worth more dead than alive. Is that, is that what you're referring to? And why, why are they doing that at a discount to tangible book? Surely you just get it away at book. Yeah, so it, it's, it's really the nature of, uh, if, it's, it's really like the nature of something being given away for free. So how can I charge a tangible book price when I'm giving you something for free on top of it, right? So that's the, like, it's just a, a sort of basic, um, and the thing is regulators have struggled, struggled with this for years, right? Because they don't want these windfall profits, right? But there's almost no way to get around it. Um, and uh, the, so I actually kind of go through a little bit of the mathematics very briefly uh, um, in the book and say, showing how regulators have struggled with this previously. Like, again, if I give you something for free and you, you pay what looks like a fair price for it, you still got something for free on top of that, right? You still got that, the, the bank's capital on top of whatever you paid. So, um, you know, how the, the mathematics and in fact, sorry, the mathematics of the valuation just don't make any sense, right? To really kind of balance the equation, you have to assume the bank destroys capital. And uh, that really just doesn't happen. Um, it's, it's, it's just the nature of that, of that transaction where you get something as a bonus for what you put out. So when you're, let's say you find one of these opportunities, how do you then size it up? How do you determine whether it's a, an interesting opportunity for you? What, what are you looking for? Yeah, so I think uh, in the book, what, one of the things I go through is a sort of nine-step checklist to, to really uh, give you a good first rough cut on, on whether the, the thrift looks interesting, right? But uh, if I really kind of had to boil that down to three qualities, I'd look at price to tangible book value, 
return on equity and equity to assets, right? Uh, price to tangible book will give you some sense of what upside you might have. And, you know, uh, one of the great things about investing in thrifts is, you know, you're, this is not an open-ended growth opportunity. If you sell today, it's not probably likely to double, right? But um, you have some range in which your value is, right? And so the, based on whatever your buy price is, if you can buy at 70% 70, 70 of tangible book, um, you know you probably have good upside at least until 100% of tangible book. And then a lot of these, uh, over time, uh, the average multiple is around 140% of tangible book that these get bought out at. Um, so it's, it can be relatively easy to calculate your potential returns and potential uh, IRRs here. Um, so uh, price to tangible book is a great, uh, uh, one great quality to look for. Um, uh, return on equity, you wanna see consistent, uh, consistent uh, uh, record of profitability here. Uh, so that they they aren't burning your margin of safety uh, uh, with uh, you know by taking down book value. What sort and, of returns on equity do they do they tend to have? Because they're sort of that I imagine if they're mutual or, yeah. or they they're sort of they're not necessarily run for profitability. So what how do you how do you kind of make that translation from mutual to to now for profit? Right, I, I think it, for some it's difficult. Um, the the and of course. Having in many cases, um, you know, these banks are are raising 150 percent uh, more capital than they already have, right? Um, and so they're suddenly like, we've got all this money, you know, returns on equity plummet. Um, but in any case, um, they're they're small, they're subscale. They've got you know they've they've got to stretch fixed costs against a small, basically small revenue base, small customer base. Um, and so the returns on equity, like a good one might be five or 6%, right? In general, right? Because right? you're, you're dealing with banks that have 250 million in assets, 500 million in assets, right? Maybe, maybe sometimes a billion in assets, right? So they, they're just not really of scale. And, and then I'll point out the, fi the final one, the equity, equity to assets is a great, uh, a great, um, uh, uh, metric to look at here, because that gives you some idea of how much buybacks they can do, how much excess capital they have in the business. Um, uh, the, ex the equity to assets also gives um, uh, an activist who comes in some room to work with in terms of pushing uh, stock repurchases, which is a really, you know, a big, uh, a big tool in the activist playbook, making sure pushing more of that money, either buying back the tangible book, um, or sorry, yeah, buying back uh, to up to tangible book value and just getting that money back to shareholders. And, um, and of course, then it provides safety, gives you some margin of safety if they write some bad loans or, or, or things like that. So, um, you know, it, the equity assets is a great one to look at. What, what do you look for there? Like what's, a, what's the sort of outer limit of where you feel it's safe? Um, so the, the, the strange thing is, the, the, these banks have a serious problem when they go public. They have ridiculous amounts of cash, right? So uh, it's it's really not at all unusual. I've got you know my spreadsheet of of thrifts, and you've got these new thrifts with easily fifteen to sixteen percent equity to assets. It's not unusual to see them with twenty percent equity to assets. 
one that completed its second step conversion, I think, I think it was last year, uh, had, yeah, last year, uh, has over 30% equity to assets, right? Um, it's when you start getting down to 10 or below, the, the activist doesn't have a lot of room to work there, can't force a big buyback. Um, and e even if the company was, uh, or management was predisposed to do a buyback, uh, they just don't have a lot of room to work, or a, lot of, a lot of room to maneuver. Do you spend any time examining the nature of the assets that they have, or do they tend to be sort of, is it checking accounts and things like that, or do you look at the loans that they've made against, you know, commercial real estate somewhere a bit racy like Las Vegas or something like that? Yeah, the, the, the thing is, so, um, yeah, I mean, so if you're looking at deposits uh, on the liability side, you're, you're, I mean, one of the big things is how valuable is that franchise, right? And so definitely looking for, this is one of my nine metrics. You, you want to see how much is time deposits versus non-time deposits. You know, if you've got a lot of stuff in, you know, checking, savings, money markets, that's a much better, that's more valuable for an acquirer um, than your CDs and things like that. So that's definitely, that definitely gives you an idea of how how valuable or whether it would be more valuable to an acquirer. And since that's largely the end game here, uh, that's something you want to be aware of. And then, yeah, if you're looking at assets, so many of these are really focused on uh, residential type of stuff, like really plain vanilla uh, kinds of stuff. And that's a, I admit that's a pretty broad brush, uh, but a lot of these are located in a lot of these thrifts are located in relative, they've got one or two or three or four branches and they're small rural areas uh, in some cases, not all. Um, but um, so they don't, they don't usually have uh, particularly, uh, uh, especially risky uh, lending generally. So the activists in this space, they're looking for uh, a big discount to tangible book, and then they want a very conservative equity assets. And then their playbook is to basically go in and say, buy back stock until we hit tangible book, or we get to that sort of limit of equity to assets. So the, the, the three big players, I recognize Joseph Stillwell because he's active uh, outside of that. Do you just want to give us a little thumbnail sketch of who they are and uh, how they tend to operate? Yeah, sure. So I, I just give a, a, a couple broad things, and you know the the a, a lot of what it, it's a lot of the activists really go into stocks that are fundamentally fundamentally mismanaged, and not even necessarily the cheapest things, right? But the stuff where they can actually have an effect, force some good governance. I mean, one of the key problems here for activists is you've got insiders who haven't run a public company, right? They've got no experience. The governance is really not very good, right? You look at the board of directors and it's the CEO's friends from around town. Um, and so there's like significant governance issues that need to be addressed. And just generally the, you know, for many of these guys, the bank, it's, it's their bank and they've been at the bank for 20 or 25 or 30 years and they see it as theirs. And so, um, when it's, you know, actually owned by shareholders. And so a lot of what the activists go in and do is really have to shake up that mentality, right? So um, Seidman basically is the, the guy who invented activist investing and thrifts, right, back in the 80s, and kind, kind of completely 
uh, inadvertently. Like he just kind of got into the activism uh, inadvertently, which he goes into the story and the backstory uh, in the book. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a great read in, in terms of how he gets, gets into it. But I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, Lashley or, or Stillwell or Seidman, they're really highly focused on the government, governance aspects uh, of, of the bank. And, and so much of their playbook and it's not exclusively, but so much is about getting these banks sold because they're just really never going to be of scale, make, you know, make a, a suitable return on equity and things like that. Now, you might think, hey, um, why is this an attractive <laughs> place to invest? Um, and uh, it's, it's largely because uh, an acquirer can come in and cut a lot of costs and things like that. And so uh, you know, the value to an acquirer is much more than being reflected in the public markets. So uh, you, you, you've been a long-term special situation investor and uh, anybody who's read Greenblatt's book has probably started out doing, some of those strategies have sort of gone out of favor a little bit, possibly because they've become so popular. And it used to be, you know, when, when there was a spinoff, you bought, you bought the spin because that was the orphaned but I think that management teams got smart to that. And so they really started loading all of the junk into the spin. And, uh, and so that sort of has been, or, or investors sort of became aware of the opportunity and, st and sort of aggressively bought the spin. What, what are you, um, what's your sort of palette of, what, what are your special situations? What are you interested in these days besides the thrift conversions? Yeah, so yeah, I, I definitely historically have, was more interested in spinoffs, or, or that's that's sort of where I, I initially approached this from. And I think, uh, to your point, I think um, uh, one one way actually maybe uh, nowadays is you buy pre-spin, right? And if you get a, and that gives you some optionality on the pricing, right? So that if you got uh, things that if you've got a spinoff that comes out overpriced, uh, then sort of basically by nature, you've got a parent company, if you find it attractive, that's underpriced, right? Um, so I think there's some, some, some ways to sort of compensate for, the, for that dynamic, um, although maybe not as attractive as it was, that's like you say. Um, as far as uh, things right now that are interesting, I, I don't know. Oh, I mean, I, I, I've, I'm, I'm a little bit, um, I, I feel like a few years ago, we were getting some really interesting spins, I think of 2015 with the PayPal spinoff. And that's one actually where we played, uh, we bought early and then uh, PayPal came off uh, perhaps that everybody sort of knew that was the, the, the attractive part. And eBay, I think came off initially a little underpriced. And so you could play that optionality uh, via eBay. Uh, we had uh, Cable One a few years ago, which was tremendously, tremendously attractive. Both PayPal, Cable One are up five times since then. Um, I don't know. In in, a, in the recent years, I haven't found a whole lot that I that I found interesting. Fiat but, Chrysler did that. Did, does that factor into you? Is it too old? Or that Fiat Chrysler was like a pinata for a while. There was some good stuff coming out. Right. The uh, yeah, that's not one I'm super familiar with. But what about anything else besides spins? So spins and thrift conversions. Uh, those tend to be the, the biggest, and you know, I I like those. I like both of those because they're they 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 keep happening, right? right. Um, they 
you know, we, we've got a, a cycle of spinoffs, we've got a spy, uh, cycle of thrifts, and, you know, you've got those patterns there that you can keep watching for. Um, I do I do look for others, but a lot of them tend to be a little more idiosyncratic, right? There's a specific structural factor um, that is not as, um, as um, thematic as a spinoff or not as thematic as a thrift conversion. Um, and those tend to be, uh, 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 yeah, uh, the, I like the structural element and I try to get that advantage, that edge when I can, uh, but those I think are a little bit more difficult to, uh, to, to find. Is it concerning at all that the, uh, you know, there were a thousand thrifts, I, don't, I didn't quite catch the time period, but there were a thousand thrifts a few years ago. Now there's 350 or is this a cyclical thing where they tend to, for whatever reason, they, they expand and contract over time? Uh, no. So the, the, the thousand is really, yeah, quite a few years ago. Um, uh, these have kind of sort of slowly been trickling out at two or 3% of the market every year. Uh, there really aren't mutuals being created exactly. Uh, one of the things you've got with credit unions, credit unions can convert to mutuals um, and then ultimately go public that way. Uh, so that's one, in fact, a, a, a quite interesting um, a recent uh, thrift conversion, Harbor One uh, took that approach. In 2015, 2016 or so, it converted from the credit union uh, to a mutual and then uh, went public in two steps. Uh, over a period of three years, um, and that's a that's a quite interesting one. And so that's another. There are literally thousands of credit unions out there that could ultimately take this path. It's a little bit cumbersome because um, you've got to get members to vote on it and things like that, and um, to, to vote on the conversion. Uh, but you know, one of the things that we've seen for a long time is the consolidation in the sector. It just does not make a lot of sense to have a lot of small economically to have all these small little banks hanging around. And so if uh, regulators sort of, you know, tried to tried to push a little bit more, we might see more mutuals uh, and things like that. So, um, yeah, maybe should we be worried? Maybe, but there's there's still a pretty long runway uh, on uh, thrift conversions as a, as a situation. What about just banking generally that, you know, low interest rates and uh, like a flat yield curve kind of makes it hard for them to, to make money. Is that is that sort of part of what drives these smaller uh, thrifts to convert? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's the interest rate environment is certainly not helping. And that's, that's part of it. Uh, you know, another, there's sort of multiple aspects here to uh, compliance costs, whether that's, you know, a cost of being listed on the exchange, um, you know, um, uh, the uh, accounting costs, uh, there's tech costs that are involved, um, you know, and so you've got, if you've got 250 million in assets, it's like, it's not really feasible for you to continue as a, as a, as a uh, separate entity. And, you know, one of the things that you've sort of seen a little bit behind the scenes here is um, these thrifts can merge with each other, right? And so some, some of what they're doing is consolidating some of the back office operations. Um, and then the depositors, if the bank ultimately does decide to go public, still get a piece of, piece of the IPO action there. 
Um, so yeah, the, the cost structure is just tr really prohibitive for small institutions. And you know, the, it, the economics of consolidation are really only getting more favorable. And so sort of perversely, <laughs> poor operators are actually more attractive buyout targets, right? <laughs> Uh, there's this just strange dichotomy, uh, strange irony there in, in that situation, right? The, you've got these really ugly kind of banks, and that's how, what I call them in the book. I just say these these ugly banks, and but actually can make you pretty attractive returns. I mean, a bank that's general or a little thrift that's generating five or six percent on assets. There's a reasonable argument to be made that that should be trading at a reasonable discount to tangible book value. Probably should be forty or fifty percent of of tangible book value. So the opportunity, I guess, is that you see that they they can be run much better than they have been. They can be run for profit. And, and once the insiders start working in that sense, it becomes a much more attractive opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like in many cases, the, the insiders here uh, are owners, right? And they, they don't like to get this payday as owners, you have to go public. There's really not a, a good alternative. You can't own stock. Uh, you know, it's not a stock corporation. So, um, so you've got insiders. The, the game plan here is well known. If you go public and you're not running things properly, you're going to get a knock on your door from Larry Simon or Rich Lashley or Joe Stilwell or, you know, some other guys. All right, you got to clean it up. And uh, um, so I, the other, you know, the other aspect is they're, as I said, they're, they're owners. And so they, they, they do have some upside here. Where do thrifts come from? Why, why were they a sort of these small things established? You know, it's a, is it that a small community didn't have some sort of banking function? And so they've just got together as a group and, and, and created it. Yeah. I, the, I mean, just tremendously, you know, it's a very anachronistic kind of um, situation, right? You, you, uh, I think the first one is back almost 200 years ago, uh, I think in the Massachusetts area. And, uh, and really you had a bunch of um, people with capital, right? Who could put it up and, uh, and help uh, people get started. And so some of it was uh, about civic virtue, right? Like we, we, the wealthy have some money and we can help other people who are you know, willing to willing to uh, uh, buy residence, start a business, um, and um, and provide them capital for what they're doing. And so, there's I think uh, just a sort of a sense of helping the community, and you still got that that uh, perspective that lasts uh, through today. And a lot of mutuals also come out of the 20s and 30s, um, and uh, with with very the. The, a lot of the charters there are really to make very conservative loans and uh, help uh, consumers buy houses, right? And uh, it's, it's really about helping the community in a way that um, may not be always aligned with making money. They were looking forward 200 years in the future where the eight generations, in eight generations, there's going to be a windfall when you, when you, finally convert that checking account into shares in this bank. Um, one of the things that you say that you can do in the book is supercharge your returns by getting top professionals to work for you for free. Are you referring to the activists or, or who are you talking about there? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it, right? And so the, they're, they're, the, 
really, I don't think there's a sector in the stock market where activists so dominate as, as they do in thrifts, right? And uh, these guys, you know, the guys I mentioned, Stillwell, Simon, Lashley, really uh, very closely uh, are, are really uh, devoted uh, to this market, to small banks, banking uh, generally. And uh, if you watch the activist campaigns that they're running, uh, when they run them, when they take shares in a bank, uh, those are great opportunities. Uh, and if you follow those campaigns, one of the things I do in the book, right, is, is discuss uh, active, specific activist campaigns that I've invested in uh, run by, uh, run by uh, these guys. And, uh, you know, First Financial Northwest, for example, right, with Joe Stilwell about 10 years or so ago, nine, 10 years ago. Um, and you could, follow, you could follow along with uh, the, the, the actions that he took Right, ultimately gets the 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 chairman and CEO ousted from the company, um, and in many cases, uh, you can invest. You can see really positive developments in the activist campaign and not have to pay for them. Um, so, uh, you know whether that's buybacks or getting better governance or pushing for a sale. Uh, these guys really are the bulldogs that don't let go and. Uh, they're just going to hang around until they get uh, a positive uh, resolution. And, uh, you know, and they're pushing for really the shareholder friendly moves, right? And so you can really ride these guys' coattails um, and they're going to direct you to attractive stocks. Yeah, that's two of my favorite things, undervalued stocks with an activist involved. I think that that's a really uh, good way to get some pretty reasonably safe, uh, good returns in the market. Yeah, ex exactly. And, um, you know, you're, so you've got an activist who's getting repurchased, stock repurchased, and you're buying below tangible book, and, you know, on and on and on, right? So like, you, there's just multiple, multiple ways to win here, I think. And, you know, the, it's, in a lot of ways, I think it's classic value investing. Thrift conversions are classic value investing, but I think perhaps unlike, maybe unlike classic value investing, there's a clearer life cycle, right? In, in terms of, you know, you buy cheap and then you get that sellout, right? So you, that, that acquisition by arrival. And so there's a, there's a clear end gamer uh, catalyst to that value that's well understood. Um, and yet these things still pop up in the market, right? As I said, I was looking, I, you know, a couple months ago, I was buying a, a stock at 70% of tangible book value. Um, that was consistently profitable and had a ton of equity. Uh, fantastic discussion. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, if folks want to follow along with what you're doing or get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? So I would, I would point to two ways, uh, either Twitter, uh, I'm all, all on Twitter and uh, tweeting out uh, IPOs, <laughs> thrift IPOs when they happen. Um, but then also at the zen of thriftconversions.com, I've got spreadsheets that super super accessible so you can follow what's out there. Uh, and even if you wanna participate uh, uh, by depositing money in a thrift before it goes public, 
you can access uh, the mutuals and see see which ones are in your state and which ones you might be able to participate in. I'll uh, I'll link all of that up in the uh, in the show notes so folks can follow along. Uh, James Royal, PhD. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>